stand with me. Uh, want to go to Matthew, the 12th chapter. The, the selected text I was given, I was assigned uh, the 36th through the 37th verse. But we're going to, for context, we're going to start at uh, verse 22. So I'm going to try to read as quick as I can to, to go through. If you got it, say amen. 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 It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Mm -hmm. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Mm -hmm. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, mm -hmm. the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Mm -hmm. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, mm -hmm. and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that if I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house? and carry out his possessions right. unless he first ties up the strong man. Right. Then he can plunder his house. Yeah. Whoever is not with me is against me. Yeah. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Yeah. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Ghost yeah. will not be forgiven. Yeah. Either in this age or in the age to come. Yeah. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. Mm -hmm. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Amen. You grew the vipers. In other words, as children of snakes. How can you who are evil say anything good? For well, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, this is where I text, that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you, be, you will be acquitted. And by your words you will be condemned. Amen. 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 This ain't no hoops, Thank you, Pastor, for that. But if they turn to your neighbor, smile with your 32s, your 28s, your 48s, whatever you got, and tell them, neighbor, neighbor, today's topic is the heart of the matter. Of the matter. Go ahead, You may be seated in the presence of God. In order to understand this text, we'll have to look at the greater context for just a second, and we'll see how it all ties in the end, all right? All right. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus is inviting burdened people to come to him for rest. Mm -hmm. We all know that familiar text. It's, it's, it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus extends this invitation to rest at the end of chapter 11. And chapter 12 opens up with Jesus and the disciples in the wheat fields on the Sabbath. The significance of ending chapter 11 speaking about rest and then opening chapter 12 with the scene on the Sabbath ought not to be lost on the serious Bible reading. Yeah, yeah. That transition from one chapter to the next ought to indicate that one of the major themes of chapter 12 is going to be about how Jesus gives that rest that he mentions in chapter 11 as opposed to the Pharisees who do not. And as Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, as he is the chief, he is the owner and director of a rested existence. Yeah. He is the final authority on what it means to rest. Yes, sir. When we look at Jesus' interactions with, with the Pharisees in, chapter, in this chapter, we see that at the core, at the center, at the heart of the meaning of the Sabbath is the concept of simplicity. Mm-hmm. Living and leading a simplified life. That keeping the Sabbath is not just about taking a day off every six days, avoiding any and every kind of work. It's about more than that. When the Sabbath was, when the Sabbath command was handed down to from Moses, from God to Moses to the Israelites, you got to understand the context of the culture in which God commanded handed the command. The Israelites were fresh out of slavery. They were overworked and had been driven for 400 years. So it suffices to say they had no concept of rest. The only perception of themselves was in their ability to produce, which means they may have had a work ethic out of this world, but no real concept of learning to cease from that work and be more than what the Egyptian masters saw them to be. And for what? There was no sense in building an identity beyond their usefulness. Mm. When all that matters about you is your ability to work and produce, you'll mistake that for who you are. And at this point, God is saying, while I designed you to work, that's not all I designed you to be. For I am not Pharaoh, I am your creator. More than working, I created you to be. More than making a living, I created you to have a life. More than having an ID badge, I created you with an identity. You are more than your job, your career, your hustle, your side So the Sabbath was instituted to shift the mindset of the people from being just workers to worshipers. It was designed and instituted to cultivate a sense of being and identity outside of the nine to five. To connect with the simplicity of being whom God created them to be and not what they felt they needed to be. So God through Moses, instituted the Sabbath to a people he got out of Egypt in an effort to get Egypt out of the people. No longer will you be defined by what you do. You will be defined by who I created you to be. So what started as a Sabbath day was initial was ultimately intended to be a Sabbath life. Arrested existence that's rooted in the simplicity of being only who God created you to be. Nothing more and nothing less. So fast forward some thousands of years later, and now this sect, this this social movement, this religious party called the called the Pharisees have interpreted what it meant to keep the Sabbath to the point of absurdity. <laughs> it regulated how many steps 
somebody to take on the Sabbath. Wow. They prohibited 39 different categories and many more subcategories of work that could be done on the Sabbath. Yeah. And the interpretations have continued even to this day when pushing a button on the elevator is considered work. Wow. So on the Sabbath, in Israel and other Jewish communities that can afford it, they have elevators that are automatically set to open and close on each and every floor. So if you're on the first floor and you need to get to the tent, you gotta wait. Until it gets to that floor, and when you get on, you're gonna be stopping at every floor until you get to that tenth floor. Opening and closing the doors. You can imagine that kind of existence. You just, I'm, I'm just, I'm staying at home. I, I got nowhere to be that requires more than one story. That's, okay, I ain't got the kind of time. With all of these rules and regulations for the Sabbath, you now have a people that are not being. They are now working on the Sabbath, pleasing their Pharisaic masters, trying to remember all of the rules and the regulations and the expectations placed on them that complicate life and get in the way of truly being at rest, enjoying and experiencing God and all that he has created. And Jesus, he was now the new Moses. He comes and says, enough is enough. He sets the people free from the Pharaoh, I mean, Pharisees and works to simplify what they have complicated and confused. And is anybody glad to serve a God that doesn't require all that we think we require, He requires to engage Him? That He is a God that has simply laid out what He requires for us to do. That is simply to have faith and believe in His name and believe in the finished work of Calvary. Someone give God a praise for that. In chapter 12, while the Pharisees get on Jesus about his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath because they were hungry, because they categorized plucking grains as harvesting, Jesus says the Sabbath should not prohibit people from getting what they need. What the Pharisees complicated, Jesus simplified. What the Pharisees later on in this chapter challenged him on the legality of healing a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus said that the Sabbath, the rest, should not keep people from doing what is right. What the Pharisees complicated, Jesus simplified. And then he heals the man's hand and goes on to heal a bunch of other folk. But now, here's where it gets real, y'all. And, and, and where he finds the, and where we find the immediate context for today's text. During the impromptu healing crusade, the people being, the people bring a man possessed by a spirit that makes him blind and mute, and Jesus casts it out. This made the people ask, of course, naturally, could this be the son of David? Meaning, could this be the prophesied Savior, the, the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. And in that moment, where there was a clear, simple answer, uh-huh. after an obvious demonstration of God's power, yeah, yeah. the Pharisees once again complicated and confused yeah. the issue. Yeah. They stated in response to the people, this man throws out demons only by the authority of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Mm-hmm. And at this time, more than any, <clears throat> more than any other time, The Pharisees complicated matters so far, it really set Jesus off. Once again, 
even in his frustration, he simplifies the issue. He says, number one, no kingdom divided against itself will stand. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's not smart. Number two, because you use your words to complicate and confuse the way to God, rather than confess his to his power and his presence, because you have chosen to be obtuse about how the spirit, the agent and avenue of God's salvation is moving and have insulted him, that very agent and that very avenue for your salvation has now been shut off from you, both now and forever. Number three, the reason why you cannot attest to something that's clearly God is not necessarily an eye-mouth issue, much like the blind mute man. But it is a heart issue. It is what is in your heart that comes out of your mouth and complicates and confuses life for you and the people connected to you. It is what is in your heart that keeps you and others from living a life in tune with God's will and purpose. It is what is in your heart that compels your mouth to build a life that's burdened with stuff God never intended for you to carry. And it is in that third part of Jesus' rebuke that we realize that if we're going to talk about the stewardship of the tongue, if we're going to talk about the stewardship of your mouth, we really have to talk about the stewardship of your heart. Now, while your mouth can be a deadly weapon, your heart gives you the ammo. While your mouth can be a sword, your heart delivers the swing. So we have to ask, in this case, what was in the Pharisees' hearts that caused them to talk themselves out of God's salvation and into God's judgment? What was in the Pharisees' heart that made them say empty words? Words that did not simplify and edify the way to God, but to complicate and confuse the lives of others? What about their hearts that made them add burdens on the people and block them from experiencing God's rest? Because it is in the asking that we may find ourselves. That we may talk, not talk ourselves out of opportunities to see God move in our lives. That we may not speak and cause other people's lives to be burdened with our expectations for lives. And instead speak things that will serve to move people towards the simplicity of following God's will and purpose for their lives. So what was in the Pharisees' hearts? Well, number one, they were committed to their comfort. The Pharisees, they were committed to their comfort. The Pharisees were comfortable with their worldview. They were comfortable with their interpretations of the law and not concerned about how it affected the lives of those they isolated themselves from. As a matter of fact, the very word Pharisee means isolated, means separate, separate. They were comfortable with their traditions. They were comfortable with their privilege and their prestige. They were more committed to the culture and environment they created than to sensing the move of the one that created them. And Jesus, who was a threat to their way of life and represented the new move of God, challenged their comfort. Have you grown comfortable with the way you live your life? Have you played it safe? Have you not rock the boat? Have you maintained the status quo? Are you more concerned about you protecting you and yours than about progressing in faith to be more like Christ? There are times we may have kept silent 
when we should have spoken up. Some of us have went along with something that wasn't right for the sake of maintaining our status, our reputation, our connections. Some of us have spoken in ways that made us feel fine, but have made other people's lives miserable, unsafe, unhealthy, and complicated. What is your comfort zone, your safety net, costing you and the people around you? Jesus says in Matthew 10, and 39, he says, those who find their lives will lose them. And those who lose their lives because of me will find them. Amen. In the midst of God's blessing and favor on our lives, we can tend to think that it's all there is to life. We can be so caught up in living a blessed life that we miss opportunities God puts in our way to be a blessing to others. Especially when it comes to the what we say and to and about people. The gospel, the good news, isn't the good news because it is comfortable. It is good because of the results it produces even when it's uncomfortable in its delivery. And when we leave our comfort zones, when we decide to move with God in the sphere of uncomfortability, when we decide to move with God in the sphere of outside of our comfort zones, when that it is there that when we find ourselves being good news to those that need to hear our voice. Speaking up may cost your job. It may mean walking away from the negotiation table. It may mean picking up the phone and saying, I'm sorry. It may mean learning to affirm and encourage your child's vision for their life even when it's not what you had intended. But every time we let go and risk our comfort and familiarity to speak words of integrity, wisdom, forgiveness, encouragement, and kindness, we have the assurance from God that when we find more, that we will find more in Him than what we let go in this world. Come on, come on. So number one, they were committed to their comfort. Uh Number two, Pharisees were preoccupied with their perception. They were expecting a Messiah that would deliver Israel from all oppression and be an earthly king. Uh And because they felt their meticulous interpretation of the law was correct, they assumed the Messiah would follow their rules and regulations, which was everything to them. The Pharisees were so caught up in their image of the Messiah and how he was to come in the world that it was impossible to perceive Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, born not in a palace or among the elite class, but in a trough in a stable as the prophesied Messiah. Jesus in every way did not fit their messianic picture, so they rejected him and ultimately rejected God himself. How does your perception of God's movement inform how you speak about what he's doing in your life and in the lives of others? Can he only use certain people that you deem worthy of speaking his word to you or to bless you? Is it possible that the very person you're speaking against is the same person that God wants to use to bless you? I never shall forget. I I had a, a colleague that every day for lunch, she orders this Vietnamese soup, and it's called pho. Mm-hmm. Some people say pho, but it's really pho. It's one of the education of culinary cuisine. You're saying it wrong now. He gets forward. 
It's, it's delicious. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's not something that you would want to eat at your desk in a shared work environment. No, and she would do this every day. Every day at 1130, I would have to sit there and she would go to lunch and come back with some fun and just sit there with the onions and the chives permeating the whole office. And I ain't trying to smell all that because I ain't trying to eat right now. <laughs> but, and I had to tolerate that. But every day, at this point, this particular day, I had had it. <laughs> I was like, you know what, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm complaining, I'm texting my wife. I was like, look, man, this is, this is ridiculous. You can't, you cannot not have this lack of self-awareness. It's not there. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm just sitting, I'm just going in via text. Man, I'm, I'm just, man, I'm, I'm going in. And, and then she turns around and she still looks at it. She says, you know what, they messed up my order. Uh, Chris, would you like my lunch? And I said, Wait, what? Uh, yeah, yeah, I took it. I threw a change on it. I felt bad. I had to repent. I told my wife, I was like, you know what, man? I, it wasn't even this year. I'm tripping. I'm going home. Got a free lunch. I'm going and I go And I walk away from my desk. Go downstairs to the break room and enjoy it. My little fun. My free fun. But uh, but it was but it was in that moment that God reminded me that God that He could use anybody to bless you. Who in your life do you need to stop complaining about and start thanking God for? Too many times we've got the wrong on people. And too many times with our mouths, we have shut off an avenue, a conduit of God's blessing and favor. So number one, they were committed to their conflict. Number two, they were preoccupied with their perception. And, and number three, the Pharisees were seduced by their significance. It was a belief that they held that when Israel was led into captivity by Babylon so many uh, centuries before, that it was due to her failure to keep the law, or what they call the Torah, given by Moses. Mm -hmm. So to prevent that from ever happening again, they took it upon themselves, they took it upon themselves to interpret the law in ways that it would be impossible to break them. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, it created an additional burden on the people, and it lost the law's original intent. Mm -hmm. yeah. They derived their significance the Pharisees derived their significance from something God had not even told them to do. Mm. Has your significance come from you saying yes to doing things God has not called you to do? Wow. Some of us are walking around with living burden and complicated lives because we don't know how to say no. We wear all of our overwhelming duties and responsibilities as a badge of honor, when in reality the word yes is literally killing us. We lose sleep, we get sick, we burn out, and are not able to relieve ourselves of the responsibilities because we think no one cares about the work like we do. So we hold on falling more and more out of touch with God's original intent for our lives as we derive our significance from trying to meet our own made-up expectations. Wow. Somebody say it's killing us. It's killing us. All of these, commitment to your comfort, 
preoccupation with your perception yes. and seduction by your significance all produce a heart that is burdened with fear, anxiety, stress, and resistance to God's simple call to rest in him and be able to speak things that are in line with his purpose and his will for their lives, for your lives. So what's the solution? How do we begin to unload and get rid of these burdens and needless expectations? See, Jesus said it simply in 11, in, at the end of chapter 11. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for you, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's two things Jesus asked us to do in this text that will help us with our burdened hearts. First of all, we have to accept his invitation. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Jesus calls us to come. If we are willing to admit that we are burdened and weary with how we are living life and bring our burdens to him, we can receive the rest that simplifies what we have complicated. The rest that frees us to be exactly what he has created us to be. We can experience the Sabbath life he came to give and, and speak a rested existence even into the lives of others. It wasn't until I got tired of dating on my terms and said with my mouth, God, you can finally have my love story. And I, and I was just focused on the assignment that you had for me. And then I rested in his choice for my mate. That God simplified my life. Come on. And at the right time brought forth who he had for me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You see, Jesus, he won't force himself on you. You have to finally be tired of how your words and actions are affecting your life and say, now, Lord, you can have it. But not only will you have to accept his invitation, not only will you have to accept his invitation, you have to adopt his instruction. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In those days, and even now, uh, a yoke, I don't think most of us, we don't farm, so we don't, we're not a, a familiar with how that looks, but a yoke is a farming apparatus that you would put on a pair of animals, like oxen, to help pull a, a plow or a cart. Now, wait a minute. Hold up, man. That, that, that sounds like work. <laughs> he just told us we were going to rest, y'all. How does that work? Mm. That we work and rest. Come on. Now, do you remember what I said when I said that in God instituting the Sabbath, that he was saying that even though he created us to work, uh -huh. that's not all he created us to do. Yeah. And that in implementing a Sabbath day, he was getting us to the point of ultimately living a Sabbath life. Uh -huh. Even when we are not, even when we are working. Yes. That is what is happening here. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is showing us what rested work looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It is a work that is well suited for you. It is the load that he has designed for you to carry 
And as such, it is a manageable load. That is what it means when he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That Christ's yoke for your life is well suited for you. It's easy. And that the load you pull with him is manageable. It's light. Here's how that happens. In most cases, the oxen under the yoke would not be of equal strength. One would be a stronger, bigger, older ox. And the other would be a younger, smaller ox. The stronger, bigger, older ox will pull all of the weight. And the younger, smaller ox will be trained, broken into the yoke. And here's how you have rested work. Jesus is pulling all of the weight. And all you have to do is stay in step and in pace with him. Don't go any faster than him. Meaning don't assume you know the way better than him. Don't lag behind. Meaning don't be slow to carry out what he's leading you to do. Adopting Christ's instruction teaches you two things about him. Number one, he says, I am gentle. Yeah. Other translations use the word meek. Uh -huh. Meekness, gentleness in this case. It's not it's not meek, it's not weakness or harmlessness, but it's great strength, great power under great control. Yeah. Yeah. It is knowing when to effectively use your power and when to show restraint for the purpose of achieving a greater goal. Yeah. In other words, Christ's yoke teaches you how to live a disciplined life. Yeah. In terms of stewarding your tongue, under Christ's yoke, you'll learn when it's the best time to say something and when it's best to hold your peace. You'll find the courage to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. You'll find the confidence to say no to what God's, for what's not Christ's load for your life. And the strength to say yes when God's will may not always look like what you thought. Christ's yoke not only teaches you a discipline, not only teaches you a disciplined life, yeah. he then says, I am humble in heart. Yeah. 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 Humility is also not a weakness, mm. nor does it describe a person who is a doormat. Yeah. Actually, yeah. It, it describes a person who is self-aware, uh -huh. who is secure, yeah. and grounded. Yeah. Because Christ knew who he was, he had no problems humbling himself. Yeah. So while Christ's gentleness teaches you to live a disciplined life, yes, his humility teaches you to live a defined life. Yeah. It is in staying in step under the yoke of Christ that you're able to lay hold of your identity, of your true identity, and learn how to no longer speak from a place of insecurity, nor a lack of confidence. You'll no longer feel a need to answer everybody who disagrees with where God is taking you. You'll be able to do the work unbothered. Because you will know who you are and whose you are. You have a problem with your tongue? Do you? Okay. Get well, we're going to get to the heart of the matter. And we have to accept his invitation to rest in him. And we have to adopt his instruction so that we can live a disciplined life, knowing when to use the power of our voices and a defined life, knowing who it is you truly answer to. Amen? Amen. 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 And amen. Amen. amen.